My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound uh, reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. There are many luminous passages in the Bible that speak about the generosity of the people of God, the people of Israel, and later the new people of God, the Church. We see, for example, the passage in the book of Exodus. We are told that Moses has to build the sanctuary of the temple. So he summons uh, Bezalel and Oholiab, who were very skilled workmen and knew how to craft things. And so he entrusts them with his, with this task. And God's people bring more than enough to meet the need that God had asked for. So much so that Moses has to tell them, okay, stop, stop. You're bringing too much here for this, for this sanctuary. Because it was an expression of this generous desire of the people of God to help, to be there for something as holy as uh, the sanctuary of the temple. We saw on Monday that moment when Mary of Bethany broke open this alabaster jar on Jesus' feet, this costly nard, this perfume, this oil that was worth so much, a fragrance that filled the entire house where they were. It was a perfume that was usually carried around the neck and it would be dabbed on a body or something like that and it was often used in in funerals over the corpse. But it would just be one little dab here, one little drop. But she took that alabaster jar which in and of itself was expensive even without the perfume, but but she took the whole jar and the whole perfume was poured onto our Lord's feet. And uh, Jesus received this gladly, but Judas felt it was a waste. He was very stingy. And uh, he said, this could have, this is a waste. This could have been used for the poor, even though we know he... He often took money for himself. He didn't really care for the poor. That was just like an excuse because he was ultimately quite stingy. And then our Lord gave a reason why she did that. He he said to them, she's preparing me for my burial. But nobody, nobody seems to have been alarmed by this. Maybe they thought, well, he's burial. Yeah, we're all going to die. So the burial is going to be in a few years from now or you know, who knows when. But in fact, it was a matter of days, yet it, it seems as though nobody picked up on that hint, if you can call it that. We see other manifestations of generosity. We see this, precisely the generosity to the poor and those in need among the first Christians, as St. Paul recounts in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says to them, And now, my brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace 
that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave us as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. I mean, he, he struck that people who are in severe trial were, were so amazingly generous. He says, and they did so entirely of their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. And later on he said, For I know your eagerness to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you in Nakaya were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. So when you see somebody exercising lots of generosity and showing or expressing this gift of themselves, it stirs other people up to want to do the same. He said, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So we may end up sort of being generous or giving a lot, but kind of like with a certain reluctance, a certain compulsion, a certain maybe even resentment. Because we're not convinced that giving of ourselves, our time, our, our means, our abilities is worthwhile somehow. You'll recall how the Lord also mentions the widow's might, how she gave everything that she had to live on, or the good Samaritan who gave his time, his resources, and his skill to meet this, this man who was found there, dead or half dead on the side of the road. But the Good Samaritan makes himself available, makes himself vulnerable. He probably had a lot of things to do, but instead of you know, attending to all his legitimate concerns and needs, he took care of this fellow. It's really the definition of hospitality. And not only that, but this spread itself to the innkeeper, right? This innkeeper, all we know is he's the innkeeper. We don't know his name. We don't know who he is. But uh, he too must have said, okay, I'm going to just take care as much and, and that guy will pay me back. But maybe the guy later on spent X number of money on medicines and stuff and, and uh, you know, the good Samaritan wanted to pay him back afterward, and he said, "No, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, you know, I'm fine. You don't have to pay me back." You know, in other words, his generosity was somehow uh, infused to the innkeeper as well, or the little boy in the Gospel of Saint Matthew gives a few loaves, and Jesus uses his generosity to feed five thousand. Yeah, that's all I have. I have a few loaves. That's all I got. You know, but it was already a lot for the for the young boy. And so, you know, whoever gives generously, he will reap generously. 5,000, that's a lot of loaves, a lot of fish. Or even somebody like 
little Zacchaeus who ran and, uh, and climbed the sycamore tree to be able to see Jesus, right? He is converted, he invites him, and he says, he says, I'm willing to give four times over to anyone I might have defrauded. Like, not just give back the money he's defrauded, but four times over. That's, that's generous. And it's so great joy was filled in that house. Just like the house of Mary Bethany was filled with the perfume, there was joy. There was this recognition that Zacchaeus not only had converted, but had, had expressed this in his generosity. And so, you know, this is something we have to ask for, this generosity, this gift of ourselves as well. And there are many other cases like that in the Gospels and the Old Testament. It's an invitation for us also as we enter now into the, almost into the Triduum now, which is such an expression of God's love and God's generosity with us. Where have I been in any way generous or have I had this magnificent magnanimity in my life? Our Father said in the way, there is a story of a soul, he says, who on saying to our Lord in prayer, Jesus, I love you, heard this reply from heaven. Love means deeds, not sweet words. Think if you could deserve this gentle reproach. So it was a gentle reproach, no doubt, that our Father received. We just said, I love you. No, te quiero con locura. I love you. But he wanted our Lord to see those words translate into generous acts of gift of himself. It was like a locution, you could say, that he had received. And um, this is uh, found out only l later that this, this took place probably around 1932. On another occasion, our father had been suffering from a bad cold for several days. And he wrote, he wrote in his uh, personal notes, his diary, says, It has been an occasion for my lack of generosity towards God to show itself. You know, when, when you have a cold, you're cold. <laughs> you're tired. Uh, you don't want to do anything. You just want to hunker down and lie in bed. And uh, For our father, he says, that shows my lack of generosity, he said. I slacked off in my prayer and in the thousand little things that a child can offer his Lord each day. I started noticing this and that I was postponing the fulfillment of certain resolutions about putting more time and effort into devotional practices. But I calmed myself with the thought, later, when you're well, when your family's financial situation is in better shape, then. So it was a form of procrastination that he identified in his soul, and he read that as a lack of generosity. Indeed, the, the Lord was asking him for more, more. I want more, even if you have a cold. And he eventually reacted with that generosity. You'll remember how when he was giving communion to those nuns in the, the convent of Santa Isabel, he was praying as, as each nun would come forward. He was imagining, okay, he probably knew some of the nuns, and this one has this issue, this one has this struggle. 
this one is like that or like this as he was giving them communion you know, Corpus Christi, Corpus Christi and as he was seeing them and they were must have been very prayerful souls they'd give it, they'd be behind the grill, right they're contemplative, they're cloistered he said, I love you more than these and immediately I understood without the need for words love is deeds, not sweet words and excuses I saw clearly at that moment how little generous, little generosity I have. And suddenly I recalled many unnoticed details I hadn't been paying attention to, which brought home to me with crystal clarity my lack of generosity. Oh Jesus, help me so that your donkey will be fully generous deeds, deeds, with deeds. This, he wrote this down, but it was written down, but it was also somehow articulated into some practices that would express greater generosity. You can't just write about generosity, you have to live it. And our Father, as you recall, had that particular phrase that would explain why we have to give more, why we have to struggle better, why we have to seek to always be better humanly in our work, ascetically, spiritually, professionally, intellectually, without being like micromanagers or, or control freaks. Right? He would say that we have to be the aristocrats of love. It's, a, it's an interesting phrase, the aristocrats of love. It was, it was used by a religious of his time in a, in a poem about the monasteries of his time. And they, this this religious would say this about the monks. The monks were the aristocrats of love, you know, because they would whatever they would pray in their monasteries. And but our father said no. But it has to be applied not just to monks, but also to us. Meaning that we too have to be contemplatives in the middle of the world. This religious would say you no. Know, would say well the monasteries, they're aristocrats of love. They know how to love. They pray. They are pious in those monasteries. But our father said, well, we too have to be pious and contemplatives. Not in monasteries, but where we belong, in the world. Aristocrats of love. Aristocrats comes from the Greek aristos. Uh, In fact, I think that's where you get the name Aristotle from, which means, aristos means the best, the best. And he was the best philosopher, right? And uh, that's why we say that aristocracy you know, when we say, our father said, the aristocrats of love, well, the aristocracy was traditional, traditionally the, the noble class, usually emanating from the ruling monarch, who had his family, and or from people who were of very educated tastes or manners or beliefs, you know, they were the aristocrats, right? The noble classes. And, of course, we know in the 18th century, uh, the French Revolution exploded and was severely against this noble class. Certainly, anybody who was a aristocrat, because those people had come become completely out of touch with the, the working classes, with the poor. They were always off doing their own hunting and lived in their chateaus. You know, and uh, you know when 
Marie Antoinette said, let them eat cake, that was the last straw, right? I mean, that, that was it. Well, that's the legend. I don't know if it's even true, but, uh, you know, because that's all she did was eat cake, you know, and they don't even know what cake is. They're just, you know, they, you know, well, they had a hard time, and it, it just, it's just a, one of those words or expressions that underlined how much she didn't really care. So, unfortunately, she lost her head for that statement, but... Uh, and later, many aristocrats were killed. Not that that's what we should do, of course, but um, even even on the facade of uh, Notre Dame Cathedral, they went and decapitated all the kings that they could see there. They were, of course, the kings of Israel, but they thought, well, they're kings, so they're bad. Let's just you know knock off their heads. You know? And uh, they thought they were French kings or something. You know, but that's how that they had such a revulsion against uh, the aristocracy, which indeed had really fallen out of touch. They hadn't been properly true aristocrats in the sense of, you know, uh, sort of high level in their human qualities. And, um, well, the aristocrats felt themselves to be like a class above the rest, Therefore, they had their privileges, they were noble, and so forth. But we don't consider ourselves a special class in that sense. We don't think we're better than anybody, as the aristocrats of the French Revolution did think. We are like everybody else. But, he could say, our love is special. We're not aristocrats in society. We're just like everybody else with the Joe Blows of life. But, we want to nurture our our ability and our desire to love with generosity. There's something special in our love. Our love for others, our love for the St. Raphael girls, for the, the cooperators, for those who live here, our sisters. You know, like it's, it's a special level there. St. Paul said, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clashing cymbal. And so that's what has to be aristocratic about us. It's not our possessions or class or because we have, uh, of, for, the, for the Germans, a von in front of our name. You know, von, you can imagine if my name was von Nikolai, you know, the, that would mean I was aristocrat. Or the French, de. Like uh, de Rochebrune, right? That's uh, that means you're noble, noble, in, you know. So, and I guess every country has their noble classes, and uh, and so that's why one of the best things we can do is help young people increase their desires to be generous people, generous among young people, and but they have to see that in us. We have to give them an example of generosity with our use of time, with our attention to them, with our energies. How can I, how can I be generous with them? Hmm? I heard about this years ago, about a, a project that was started by some members of the work in Russia. Now that we're talking about Russia and Ukraine. And this program was called Russian Solidarity. And it was a social work project started by members of the work in the U in in Russia where they brought a number of uh, US students 
and I presume also students from, from other parts of Europe, and they would go on these social work projects to Russia, and it was very magnanimous in inspiration, and um, the leader of this, the guy who wrote uh, that book, Virtuous Leadership, uh, Alexander Avar, he says, uh, this is what he, how he describes it, he says, uh, the students raise money to cover the expenses of their stay in Russia. They work hard, resting only on weekends to do things they like play soccer with in, inmates of Russian juvenile prisons. We designed uh, the Russian Solidarity Project not to solve this or that social problem, but to foster magnanimity in young people, he said. Thus, as we help poor people materially, we are also helping our students to get outside of themselves. They learn about working in teams, about friendship, about the joy of self-giving, about the high importance of social solidarity. Russian Solidarity is a program focused on the welfare of both the recipient and the giver. And the reaction of the local population was, has been extremely positive. But they are grateful for and amazed by the generosity of the foreign students. But few people, mainly into intellectuals, have reacted negatively. Okay, so the intellectuals were going like they were like trying to figure this out, you know, why would students do this? And he said, they say it would be better that the funds raised to support the project be spent by an NGO doing philanthropic work and, or give the money directly to the poor. Sounds like what Judas said, right? This, this alabaster jar should have been sold and given to the poor. He says, well, perhaps so, but then it would be a different program with very different objectives. Russian Solidarity's critics cannot grasp the value of giving young people the opportunity to grow in generosity, to instill in them an appreciation for the value of personal sacrifice for the sake of others. And that's what they wanted to do. That a person comes out of a project like, th like that, exhausted, tired, but somewhere along the line, having learned what generosity really is. And that's why our father would speak about magnanimity, which is really greatness of spirit, largeness of heart, where many can find refuge in us. It gives magnanimity, it gives us the energy to break out of ourselves, to really prepare, to be prepared to take, undertake generous tasks. And maybe we might notice that we, we want everything to work well, we don't want any errors, any mistakes, and we may stay a little bit too closed in on ourselves. We have to do things, be ready to take risks out of generosity. That's what the magnanimous person does. They devote all their strengths, all their abilities, unstintingly, to something that is really worthwhile. If our father called it to be aristocrats of love, he also said, there's a Spanish expression, locuras de amor, which means doing crazy things out of love, just being crazy, you know, not sort of measuring everything out perfectly well. And uh, that's the, the logic of love that we want to uh, develop. And so 
Well, let us ask ourselves if we're being maybe very calculating in our work and uh, in, in the way we use our time, or if we're just ready just to go and give of ourselves unstintingly. St. Francis de Sales, in his introduction to the devout life, which was specifically made for lay people, not for religious, he was one of the first persons to write a book like that, for people in the middle of the world, he, he lived in a culture that, that always continued to separate lay people uh, from the quest for holiness from those who were like religious. So it, it was a very new thing for him to say these things. He, says, he said, it is an error, he said, even a heresy to endeavor to banish the devout life from the ranks of soldiers, shops, the shops of tradesmen, the courts of princes, or the household, households of married people. Whoever we are, we may and ought to aspire to perfect life, what we call the life of perfection, which is the life of generosity. In those days, when you talked about the life of perfection, it had to mean you were religious, you were cloistered, you, know, you were a priest, that was the life of perfection. And he broke that in, like that, not, not, I would say, I don't know if you call it a myth, but he said, no, no, it's got to be applied also to every man. And we're all called to that. Yeah, that perfection, that generosity, magnanimity in the gift of ourselves. Like the woman with the alabaster jar, she was certainly not indifferent. Maybe at that point she was quite in anguish, already intuiting what was going to happen, and also experiencing her own lack of generosity her own reticence in the past, and now she was kind of like making up for it. And seeing that generosity must have made Judas blush. And so we ask for the same generosity, this same ability to give of ourselves, and especially if we've noticed some kind of reticence, well, the, the Triduum, the end of Holy Week, will be certainly a good time to reboot. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.